everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. Today, we're going to kick off a three-part series, which we'll tell you a little bit more about uh, just here in a little bit. My name is Rodney Benner. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at the Shelbourne Knee Center in Indianapolis, and my co-host is Scott Bauman. Uh, he's a researcher, former physical therapist in our office, and uh, we're the hosts of the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. Today, we are uh, very pleased to have the uh, the founder of our center of Shelbourne Knee Center, Dr. Don Shelbourne, is here joining us today. Dr. Shelbourne, thanks for taking some time to uh, discuss a very important topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to kick off this three-part series. Uh, first one is going to be looking at the history and the rationale of the contralateral patellar tendon graft. And then we're going to move into the more specifics of the rehab and have Bill Clausen, who's been a physical therapist here for, for a long time. And then we're going to cap it off with looking at some outcomes of the contralateral graft, both in the short term as well as in the long term. Dr. Shelbourne is a jumping off point. When I go to meetings and people that, that I'm talking to ask me what kind of graft I'm using, I, I get a lot of, they, they know where I work, they know what I do, and uh, they know what we do. And I get a lot of, so so Rodney, seriously, do you guys really take the graft from the other knee all the time, almost with a little bit of disbelief, as if we're saying something that we're not actually doing? And I think, and I always kind of laugh and respond with, every single time, you know, that, yeah, it's not something we do every once in a while. It's our, it's our standard graph. So, um, you know, I, I think this is an interesting topic that we really want to get people involved in here. So take us back all the way to when this initially started. I know you've been doing patella tendon graphs ever since your practice started. Um, uh, but, uh, how the, how the idea of the contralateral even came to be. Well, you know, as you know, my exclusive graft is the patellar tendon graft. And like everybody else back when I started practice in 1982, I was taking the graft from the same knee because that's the way we were taught and that was tradition. And I guess the nice thing about our practice, we have a lot of young athletes that we deal with. And so getting a young athlete back to play sports with patellar tendon grafts was pretty routine. And so we were excited about that. But unfortunately, when you deal with young athletes, a lot of them go back to play and they tear their ACL again. And so then they come back again and now they have a torn ACL. We've already taken the graft from the same knee. So what do you do for the revision when you know a patellar tendon graft is by far the best graft? At that time, I had never even thought about reharvesting a graft. But I unfortunately said, well, the only patellar tendon you have left is in your other knee. And so apologetically, I kept saying, you know, I hate to do this to you, but, you know, you're a young athlete and we need to do the best graft. And this is the only place we can take it from and have a predictable outcome. So. I'm sorry to do this to you, but I have to. And so they said, well, okay, that's fine. And, you know, our biggest problem, as you know, is I have never taken a graft from a normal knee before, and I had no idea how to rehabilitate it because we didn't rehabilitate the donor site specifically when we did ipsilateral, but now we have to rehabilitate the donor site exclusively when we take the contralaterals. And it was a, it was a tough, tough few years when we were trying to learn how to do that. Yeah. And how, what was it that took it from, you know, this is a graph we use only when we have to, I'm sorry, we have to do this to you, even though we don't want to, to start to, to make that break to transition point to, you know what, this is actually may have some specific advantages when in, in kind of in history was that like, what years were those? And what were some particular experiences that started to make you think, you know what, maybe it's important to use this graph even for first time ACL reconstruction. Well, yeah, it's interesting because when you do a revision, of course, the person's anxious to get back to sports the first time around. And the second time around, you say, okay, take it easy, slow down, put the brakes on. We're not trying to rush. This is a permanent lifetime graft we're going to do now. And it scared the heck out of me how much 
faster the rehabilitation and easier the rehabilitation was when we took the graft from the other knee for the revision. And many of the patients came back and said, hey, doc, this is so easy. Why don't you do it like this in the first place? The thing that finally set me off, I had a kid in Purdue. He tore his ACL when he was in high school in Cleveland. And in November of his junior year, he tore his ACL again. And so at that point, I was stuck because I had to take the graft from the other knee. And so I did. And he went home at Christmas and came back in January. And he goes, Doc, I need to play spring ball. And I said, you can't. It's only been a month. And he goes, if I don't play spring ball, I'm going to lose my job to Billy Dickin, who is our backup quarterback. And so, you know, reluctantly, we said, OK, if you could drop back and pass. And it was so we scared the heck out of me. But he had a red jersey on the whole time. Don't touch him. Don't come near. And he went through spring ball, did great. <laughs> And, you know, again, scared me because that was like three months and nobody was ever going back at yeah. three months at that time. Well, in that fall, the captain of the basketball team tore his ACL in uh, August. And so he came in and at that time he goes, Doc, I have to be ready by the Big Ten season. I said, when's that? He goes, it starts in January. I can miss the off season or the other games, but I have to be ready in January. The best we can do is six months. Six months I was pushing the envelope back then said, hey, that quarterback last year, he got back in three months. And I said, well, that was different. The guy tore his ACL in high school. I took the graph from the other knee because I had to. He's a quarterback. And he goes, but he got back in three months. And I said, well, yeah. And he goes, well, then do that to me. I'm going, oh, shucks. You know, if anybody finds out I'm taking a Division One athlete, taking the patellar tendon graft from the other knee, I'm going to look like the laughing stock of the world. So we did his surgery in October. And Denny Miller was a trainer at that time. It's so Denny had him out in the basketball court doing drills and everything else. And in six weeks, he's looking like he's doing pretty well. And he the first game was in 10 weeks post-op. And they introduced him for the starting lineup at the first game at 10 weeks post-op. And at that point, they met, mentioned everybody said he must have just had a scope. He didn't have his ACL fix. And he actually got back and played the whole year. Unfortunately, he didn't play very well. But he was back in 10 weeks. And again, that scared the heck out of me, too. That, had, so to be a, that had to be tough from the sideline. Were you on the bench for that game? Oh yeah, scared to death. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't. I, I'm. I'm. You know, as 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 I'm sure most of us are that take care of young athletes. I'm nervous enough when they go back at you know average times. If I if I happen to be on the sideline with them, let alone if you know we're pushing the envelope on something like that. So that's a that's that's amazing. So, Dr. Schoenhorn, you were talking about doing the first one and, and having a lot of unknowns uh, from many different aspects, specifically from a rehabilitation standpoint. What were some of those unknowns or, or some things you, you you gave some thought to early on uh, when rehabbing these patients? Well, originally, when we were doing ipsilaterals, you know, because we have so many young people that are trying to get back to sports quickly, we had a lot of noncompliant people back in the 80s, and they taught me that getting back to sports had three, four, five, six months was not a dangerous thing to do, but it's just we had a hard time with ipsilateral grafts ever getting anybody back to that point intentionally. And one of the ideas of doing a contralateral graft is, well, maybe we can do the rehabilitation faster if we take the graft from the other knee and split up the rehabilitation. And that was the idea. And it turns out with ipsilaterals, I think the first time we looked at it, our average return was like 6.1 months. And with the contralaterals, it was like 4.7 months. And we looked at the time to return and the chance of having a re-injury. And we didn't find there was a correlation between going back at a certain time period and having a re-injury. It was just when you went back, you had a chance of a re-injury for these young athletes. Now, me coming from a physical therapy background, I'm, I'm really interested in the, the history of the 
evolution of rehab. So can you speak a little bit about what the rehab looked like as you started this process doing the contralaterals for primaries and how that's evolved to how, how we're doing it today? Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, for the ACL rehab, we're trying to focus on motion. And for the graft side, we're trying to focus on strength and trying to do both in the same leg at the same time was tough. But we couldn't work on strength until we got motion back. I was just telling this story earlier today about when I was doing ipsilaterals, we'd go up to PFC patients the night of surgery and we'd say, hey, how, you know, can you straighten your leg out, which is our main concern, and how far can you bend your leg? And they bent their leg about 90 degrees. And I'm thinking, eh, that's not bad for the night of surgery. And I was pretty proud of the fact that the day of surgery, ipsilaterals could bend their knee 90 degrees. But we're doing contralaterals in the day of surgery. We knew it's important for the graft site to have full flexion because we're closing the defect. And we don't want to close the defect and have a problem bending the leg. So if you bend the leg then close the, and close the defect, it spreads the fibers of the patellar tendon out. And so closing the defect and bending the knee were the two things that we did the day of surgery. So the day of surgery, we would go up and ask the patient, how far can you bend your graft leg? And they said, well, I can bring it all the way up to my buttock. And they're bending about 150 degrees. And I said, okay, how far can you bend your other one? Expecting 90 degrees because that's what we got when we took the graft from the same leg. They said, oh, I can't bend that one near as far as my other one. I said, I understand. How far can you bend? And they said, I can only bend this one about 130. They bent it 130, and that scared the heck out of me because I'm thinking they're going to pull the bone plugs out. They're going to do something to their to their graft bending it that far the day of surgery. But it was an interesting observation. It taught me that people compare side to side, and having the the donor leg having 150 degrees of flexion it really made the ACL uh, motion come back a lot better because once people knew they could do it and they thought they were comparing it to the opposite side, the grafts leg getting full motion actually encouraged the patient to get the ACL motion back a lot. And I kept thinking, why why can't ipsilaterals bend that far? And I said, it's not because I've taken the graft from that leg because the graft leg bends 150. And it turns out it was our expectations were reflected by the patient's outcomes. You know, we didn't think they could bend their legs, so they didn't bend their leg. Interesting. When you started to see those those differences from a rehab standpoint and the light bulb started to go off that maybe we should start doing this with everybody, how did those next few patient interactions go? You're getting ready to schedule somebody for surgery. You've done thousands of ipsilateral, same side graft, ACL reconstructions, and now you're starting to you know, the wheels are turning in your mind that maybe this is something we should offer to offer to everyone. How did you talk to patients about it at first? Well, you know, when we realize the rehabilitation is so much, uh, I guess, easier to do and more uh, predictable as far as outcome, initially I kept thinking, okay, if somebody really wants to get back to activity faster than the average person, I should offer this as an alternative. And so I did that for a while, and I started realizing, okay, if you said, if you take I-65 to Chicago, I can get there in two and a half hours. If you take 421, it takes three hours and 10 minutes. Which road would you rather take? Everybody says, I'll take I-65. I don't want to take three <laughs> hours and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I, kept, I kept telling patients, I said, okay, you can do two things. You can take the graph from the same knee, and it's a little more difficult rehabilitation, and it takes longer rehabilitation-wise. Or you can take the graph from the other knee and get get better a lot quicker. Which one would you rather do? And so in a way, the patients were asking me, why would you even think about taking the graph from my same knee? 
Do you feel like that conversations is, is has evolved over time also? Because in my in my experience now that I've been I've been practicing almost twelve years with you, um, I don't have to have a difficult conversation because I feel like now patients know that we do it that way. The people who refer them to us know that we do it that way, and a, a lot of people ask me when again when I go to meetings, talk to friends, you know, how what kind of sales pitch do you make to convince people or to to, uh, you know, almost like I'm tricking people into it or something to talk them into having surgery. And they're often surprised when I say, I don't really have to talk them into it. The patients now have seen the benefits, their friends or family or people they've talked to online or, or whoever they found out from have told them why we do things that way. And they've seen the outcomes and, and the, the sales pitch is very limited. I assume you saw that as a, uh, as a transition over time where you used to have to sell it pretty hard to where now maybe you don't. Well, you know, because because we've uh, we've perfected the donor site rehab so well, and I know what we have to do to get the donor site to grow back. If we do an ipsilateral right now, I'm 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 somewhat apologizing to the patients because I know how difficult it's going to be to get the donor site rehab going because you have to have full motion in order to do high repetition exercises for the donor site. And like right now, just like you said, we have data now. At first, it was more of an impression. And now that we have the data, almost every variable we look at, the contralateral patients exceed the outcomes with the ipsilateral patients. You know, but on the other hand, it has made the ipsilateral patients recover a little better now that we know our expectations in the old days weren't as high as they could be if we would have known differently. Now, going back to those early days, you talked about the the impressions without the data at that point. Were there anything or any observations you were seeing early on that either surprised you or caused you to question and, and look into how to make this better? Well, yeah, exactly. One of the things that happened is that we were doing this traditionally in younger athletes because they had a desire to get back to the activity sooner. And two things happened that kind of changed my perspective a little bit. One is that when the athlete said, well, can I go back and play in three months? And I said, yeah. And they went back and played in three months and they stunk. You know, so playing well and playing safe are two different things. And when the athlete wanted to go back to play early, you know, Dr. Benner's done this with the Purdue kids. Now we used to let the Purdue kids go back sooner, but then they didn't play well. So now we're, we're tempering our enthusiasm for getting back, knowing that they could, but they're not going to be as good at three months or four months. And now returning to sports early is much better for a recreational athlete because they're not as particular about being back to normal at three months. They just want to be on this court, you know, playing church league basketball. The other thing that happened that really uh, Tinker and I really had to evaluate what we were doing, knowing we have a lot of young athletes returning to sports, people were going back in 1994, 1995. I think they had like eight people go back and have retairs. And we never really saw retairs with the ipsilaterals when they went back early. And so we were wondering what we were doing wrong. And it turns out that taking the graft from the opposite knee actually makes the ACL reconstructed leg the good leg when they go back to play. And when kids went back to play, they, they liked their ACL knee feeling like a normal leg compared to their graft leg. And so now you know what we do with the graft leg. We make sure the strength comes back. But that was... That was an eye-opener, and so Tinker and I are looking at the data. Oh, my God, we're having retairs. We never had them before, and we said, well, maybe they're going back too soon. Well, if they went back at three or four months, their retear didn't occur until they were about seven or eight months, 
you know, nobody that went back early had a retear when they went back. It was always when they got back to what they felt like was 100% activity was when they had the retears. When kids were going back to play with ipsilaterals, I was amazed that people, when they went back to play and they didn't go back with 100% strength, which we thought was a dangerous thing to do, people would go back to play and tear their opposite ACL and not retear their ipsilateral graft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point that shouldn't be overlooked. You mentioned that patients felt that their ACL side was their good side, and you're getting these young athletes back to a high competitive level early on, and if anything, their ACL side feels better. And and that's from an ACL rehab and an ACL surgery standpoint is pretty remarkable, and, and that's something that seems like it can only be done with this approach. Dr. Showborn, you got to tell the story about without naming the names and without using the colorful language that he did. Uh, the the uh, the defensive back from Purdue uh, that came back early in, uh, in his big play. Tell us about that story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a defensive back that tore his ACL studying for finals. This is over 20 years ago now. It's kind of interesting. He, he, it was the end of May, and he came back, and he uh, was going to be a fifth-year senior, wanted to play pro ball and everything else, and he said, okay, if you do this surgery the way you're doing it, is there a chance that I can get back and play this year? And I said, well, yeah, there is. And so – Denny Miller took him under his wing and he had him out doing shuttle runs and everything else. And six weeks post-op, he's okay. And then he said, what should we do? He's our punt returner too. Should I let him return punts? I said, Denny, why don't we just start off with playing defensive back? And so here he is, he's, he's practicing and it's 10 weeks post-op. We play Cincinnati in our first game and he plays defensive back. And Denny and I are sitting there going, oh my God, a division one athlete back playing, you know, division one sports as a starter 10 weeks after ACL surgery. And we're sitting there smiling, you know, how great are we? And the guy after the game comes in and says, gosh, darn it. And just like in a colorful language, he goes, my knees are killing me. I thought you said <laughs> I could play at this. And we, well, you can. He goes, well, then why do my knees hurt so bad? I said, because you're 10 weeks after major reconstructive. So we had to talk him down off the cliff a little bit. So he kept playing. And so four months post stop, he's in the fifth game of the year. And we were playing Iowa. And he intercepted the ball and ran it back 80 yards for the winning touchdown four months post stop. And so I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder how many Division One athletes returned a touchdown 80 yards, four months post-op after ACL surgery. And I thought this guy was going to be thrilled to death, game-winning touchdown and everything else. He comes over, throws his helmet down, and he goes, that damn quarterback almost caught me from behind. I am so friggin' slow. <laughs> Uh, that that's one of my favorites. I've heard you tell that story a dozen times and it's, it's still, it still makes me laugh that, you yeah. know, he picks, he picks a bet, makes a break on the ball, picks the pad. We got a video of it. Cause I, I know, cause I've seen the video, uh, makes a break on it, picks it off, runs it back for a touchdown. And the quarterback dives at his feet at right as he crosses into the goal line <laughs> to come yeah. off and be angry about that. Just, uh, you know, it just goes to show the, uh, the high bar that our, uh, that our competitive athletes have, but, uh, pretty remarkable. You know, I want to, I want to shift gears just uh, for a little bit um, because I get another thing that people ask often about was, is, well, what do you do if somebody's uh, 35 or 45 years old and that's just a recreational athlete that uh, wants to keep skiing or, uh, you know, even people that have, you know, instability with daily activities that, you know, sometimes we'll have people that tear their ACL that are a little bit older, not that physically active, will rehab them and say you can probably live without an ACL, that they then come back later and they have instability with daily activities that ends up pushing us towards uh, or pushing us into reconstructing their ACL because they can't live with the daily instability. 
And people are saying, well, do, you, don't, you don't use that in those people, do you? And of course we, we do. So talk a little bit about in the, even, even in the unathletic population where a lot of people would say, let's go get a cadaver graft, let's take away any kind of donor site rehab, why we still do that even in those patients. Well, you know, as, as you know, the interesting thing, I, I could never imagine when people started doing hamstring grafts in older people and patellar tendon grafts in younger people, I always talk to them. I said, I can see going out into the waiting room and say, you're getting a hamstring graft and you're getting a patellar tendon graft. They say, why does the young guy get a patellar tendon graft? And the doctor would say, well, because he cares a lot. And so the 40-year-old says, I don't care a lot. Well, yeah, you do, except for you don't need a really good graft. You can have an average graft. Well, how, how can you make that determination for the patient? And as you know, actually, the patellar tendon graft allows people to get back to normal activities really, really quickly. It may not be as fast as they want to for sporting activities, but actually, as you know, our, our best results are in, in middle-aged females, and they're back to being normal in three or four weeks. And so, you know, taking the graft from the other knee is a way of almost getting rid of the complications since you're only as good as your worst leg taking the graft from the same leg you know if you're going to take a patellar tendon graft it's sort of sort of a benevolent thing for them to take it from the other leg because it allows them to get back to activities really really quickly because both legs are in about 80 percent at three or four weeks as opposed to 60 percent at four weeks if you take the graft from the same knee and I'm always fascinated in that particular group because the main uh, the the point I want to want to you know hammer home for for our listeners is the the the, the limitation w- with contralaterals is uh, when it comes to return to activity and feeling more normal is getting the strength back eventually on the on the donor site knee which we'll cover a little bit more in our subsequent episode with Bill one of our physical therapists that once the ACL knee gets the range of motion back and the swelling comes down it starts to feel pretty normal again but it's the graft knee that it's got to get the strength back, which takes a little bit longer and for a, a little bit of a period t- of time becomes becomes the worst knee. But specifically in people who are not as athletic, who are, like I said, middle-aged females, middle-aged males who are just wanting to get around normally, having daily inst- daily activity instability, things like that. I'm fascinated at always at how quickly their graft knee feels normal because they're not pushing it to athletic limits that normally end up getting some transient anterior knee pain. Um, so I feel like those people, I'm always, Scott, you can comment a little bit on this from a rehab standpoint, always kind of fascinated about how quickly those people feel like they're back to normal, especially on the graft knee. Well, Scott, Scott can talk about the RSI scores because that's the amazing thing for me is that psychologically, people come in and they feel like their ACL leg is their good leg almost from four weeks on. And from a mm-hmm. psychological perspective, how often after ACL surgery, if you ask somebody, is your ACL leg feel like a normal leg, how often do they say yes? You know, and it's another yeah. example, I had a 40-year-old guy years ago come in for his two-month follow-up, and he goes, hey, doc, I wish you hadn't taken the graph of my left knee like you did. And he goes, why not? He goes, because I played in the church league basketball league last night for over an hour, <laughs> and my ACL leg felt great, and my donor leg bothers me. I wish you hadn't taken the graft my left leg because that, that was the knee that got sore last night. And I said, you're playing full-court basketball two months after surgery. And he said, yeah. I said, don't you know that that's unusual? He goes, it's been two months. <laughs> and so you realize patients don't know what to expect. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you said psychological aspects. And of all the objective advantages I feel like the contralateral approach gives a clinician, it's that psychological piece. And Dr. Shelburne, you hit the nail on the head there when you talked about the RSI scores being being pretty high pretty early in our patients. And I, I really do put a testament to that with how much they're doing early, as you and both Dr. Benner had alluded to, you know, because both knees are working on those two different goals at the same time, they're able to accomplish those goals a little bit quicker, which in my opinion leads to higher activity levels early, which is what eventually increases psychological readiness. And as any physical therapist out there who's treating patients after ACL surgery, that is one of the biggest pieces to overcome. And usually that is more in the later stages, four, six, nine, months after surgery and and uh, we have the benefit of of doing that a little earlier here yeah no doubt and that's something we'll uh, i think that's something that we'll cover in a, in a subsequent episode when we talk about return to play in the future uh definitely definitely an important point dr shelborn as we start to as we start to wrap up here um I think sometimes it's just a little bit of a leap for therapists and for surgeons who have not had specific and direct um experience with this technique to to start to think about is Taking the graph from the taking a patellar graph from the opposite knee, something I want to incorporate into my practice. What would you say to therapists and surgeons who are who are thinking about this method and uh, may have some trepidation just because they don't have it, haven't had exposure to it before? Well, for sure, if you're going to do it, you better contact Bill or Scott or somebody because you know we struggled early on because we didn't know exactly how to how to handle this, and so don't just do it because we said to do it. You know, I think I told you there's a guy from Germany came over, started doing this on a lot of German athletes back in the day. And so he didn't know how to rehab the donor site and he got the ACL leg back. And when they went back to play, he had two high level athletes retire because of donor site pain. And so I was at a meeting about two years later and he's presenting his data. And he said, you know, if you take the graph from the same knee, they have donor side problems in that knee. You take it from the other knee, they have donor side problems in the other knee. So I wouldn't take it from the other knee anymore because all you do is cause donor side problems in that knee. He goes, Shelbourne, what do you think about that? And I said, well, you know, I hit the Pro V1 golf ball, supposed to be the best golf ball there is. And every time I hit it, it goes into the woods. That, that, that golf ball stinks. <laughs> I said, you know, it's, it's not the golf ball. It's the person hitting the yeah. golf ball. But it's not the technique, it's how to do the technique. And so if don't do the technique, you know, a number of things that happens, you're only as good as your worst leg. And so if you have two legs that are involved, then instead of being 100% on the one leg and 60% on the ACL leg, now both legs are about 80%. And the patients perceive themselves as being more normal because they're equal. And I didn't, I never realized that. Patients took less pain medicine, taking the graft in the other knee because they don't have a painful leg and a, and a not painful leg, mm-hmm. they two kind of painful legs. And so the shocking thing is how much easier they can walk early on. And so, you know, walking well with a contralateral is, is shocking. The other thing is that when we looked at our uh, numbness question on the questionnaires and kneeling question, I mean, shocked the heck out of me. More people with contralaterals say they don't feel numb because both knees feel numb and they don't notice it because it feels the same. And I mm-hmm. shocked the heck out of me and kneeling problems have gone away. If you have one knee that's had surgery and the other one hasn't, you always kneel on your normal knee. And if both of them mm-hmm. have had surgery, they kneel on both knees the same and yeah. it feels the same. It, it, it shocked me thinking I was going to cause kneeling problems and numbness in both knees. And it turns out that that perception of being numb and kneeling has gone away. 
Yeah, all important points. I always tell people just let, if you're thinking about or reading about some of our data on contralateral ACL reconstruction with teletinograph in the opposite knee, just do so with an open mind. Approach, try to approach it. We all have biases. I do just like anybody else does. But when you start reading about it, start listening to us about it, try to do so with an open with an open mind, uh, a clear and open mind. And uh, the proof's in the pudding when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the data. I would encourage anyone who's questioning whether or not they would want to do this, think about and look up your own data. Take a look at what we've been able to achieve um, with honing these techniques over the last couple of decades and uh, and, and see how it compares. And uh, of course, we, we're always open to, to people reaching out to us. If, uh, if you want more information, we would love to host anybody if they want to come see it in action. Dr. Shelbourne, thank you for joining us today. And um, uh, we look forward to uh, look forward to future episodes. Thanks. One, one thing I'd like to add, Rodney, is that people that do hamstring grafts and, and quad tendon grafts right now, it is almost an ideal situation for them to take the graft from the other knee. Mm -hmm. Because if you're, if you're doing a quad tendon, you have to make a big incision for a quad tendon most of the time. Or if you're trying to do it with a small incision, taking it from the other knee would allow you to really see how much of a deficit does harvesting the quad tendon cause. Because generally the ACL deficient leg is a weaker leg going into surgery. So similar to the patellar tendon, if you're going to take a quad tendon, take it from the other knee. If you're going to do a hamstring tendon and you can do it through a small incision, take it from the other knee. You know, the morbidity of the hamstring is probably not huge according to the people that say it, but they're mm -hmm. hit hard time straightening your leg out after having a hamstring harvest. So if you're trying to get extension back after ACL surgery, take it from the other leg. There's no downside to taking it from the other leg if the morbidity is not as bad as you as you as you claim it is, yeah, an important conversation that I would love to have in the future with somebody who who does those graphs that we don't. Dr. Shelbourne, thanks again. Uh, this has been a great discussion, and who better to discuss this this concept with than the person that pioneered this approach many years ago? So again, thank you a lot for for coming on here and discussing this process. No problem. The next episode we have coming up for you next week is looking at the rehabilitation of the contralateral patellar tendon graft. And again, we're going to have Bill Clausen on this episode, and he's going to run us through the uh, the details of the contralateral patellar tendon graft. And like Dr. Shelbourne was talking about, splitting the knees up into two different uh, goals to perform simultaneously. So looking forward to that episode, and we'll see you guys for that next week. If you'd like to contact us directly, you can go to our Facebook page, the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at the SKC Podcast and email us directly at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. This has been the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. Mm -hmm.